are you eating enough? It's a question I find myself asking probably weekly, both of myself and other people who I coach. Undereating is pretty rampant in the sport of ultra running, and some of those are for like very understandable reasons, and sometimes it's for much less good reasons. And unfortunately, even low levels of undereating can push you towards fairly serious conditions like REDS, relative energy deficiency in sport, an imbalance between your intake and your output from an like, energy perspective, and the big one, overtraining syndrome. And in some people, these might be a short setback. In others, they can be career-ending. Eating enough has become one of my like, pet projects in the training world. It's probably because I underate for years. When I originally decided to get fit and change my life, I trained for like two hours a day, ate one meal a day, and never really slept. Followed the like go hard mentality. And that worked for a while, but it eventually led to persistent injuries, constant levels of like sickness in one way or another, and huge crashes. Oftentimes, we glorify athletes who underfuel. They'll pull off amazing feats with insufficient calories, or they have a rippling eight-pack all the way through their season. And I'm not saying everybody who has an eight-pack is underfueling, but we rarely see the aftermath where these insufficiently fueled efforts where those people fall into hormonal dysfunction. And we almost never seem to recognize that abs are often born out of genetics as much as they are training and nutrition. If you're not eating enough, your performance will fall, your health will suffer, and you just won't have as much fun on or off the trails, and your longevity in this sport will be very much compromised. So if you want to know whether or not you're eating enough, stick around. I'm going to talk about food and running. And if you find any of this relevant or connect to any of it, please share it with somebody. I make this podcast so it can be a free resource for other people, for you, so that we can all do a little better in this sport and doing hard things. So share it with somebody, give it five stars, whatever you can do to help and get it out there to more people. I really appreciate it. Let's get on to it. Welcome to the Eat Well, Sleep Great, Run Far podcast. My name is Will Franz, and I'm here to help you go farther, faster, and longer without injuries, gut problems, or giving up your favorite foods. Today, we're going to be talking about whether or not you are eating enough and how you might know that for your training. So why even ask this? It would be a pretty fair question. And the answer is that so many people I talk to just aren't eating enough to support their training and their lifestyle while they still have good energy and are able to move really well, right? And like feel good throughout their day. Training should not be so heavy that you feel like garbage on a day-to-day -day basis and your food intake is going to play a big role in that. And if we're looking at why someone might be struggling to eat enough food to support their training, I think there are a lot of reasons here. One big one is that a lot of people start running 
to lose weight and it works and they get used to training in some sort of caloric deficit and they never really actually know what it feels like to train fed or what it should feel like to train with enough energy. And I speak this from experience. Like that's how I was when I originally started cycling to lose weight. I never really knew what it felt like to train in some sort of sufficient amount of calories. And then a lot of people lose a bunch of that weight and then their metabolism will finally adapt downward, which means it slows down and then they'll stop losing weight and then they'll eat a little less or run a little more and it happens again and then maybe again and maybe again. And they're running 50 miles per week, needing like 1200 calories per day and they break. And that is a pretty common story. That particular progression is pretty excessive depending on how much you have to lose or what your personal story feels like. But you might go through a couple cycles of this where you keep increasing activity and keep reducing food intake until eventually your body just doesn't, isn't willing to deal with it anymore and you kind of fall apart. And then another reason is you might be perfectly fine. You might not be running for weight loss at all. You're just trying to increase performance. You have a pretty good relationship with your food and your training throughout the year. And then you increase your training cycle to improve performance. And you just don't up your food enough to correspond with that increased training cycle. And if we're looking at a 30 mile maintenance, which is pretty standard for a lot of alt runners. It'd be high for me as someone new to it, but it's pretty normal for a lot of people. If you're looking at like a 30 mile maintenance and then you're looking to get to 60, 70, 80 miles a mile weeks to train for your 100 miler, you need to greatly increase your food intake because you're over doubling your activity. And especially at that high level of activity, we're probably going to add a good thousand plus calories per day in order to support that activity. And if you don't do that, you're very likely not going to fuel your training well, and you might end up leading more towards something like reds, which we'll get to it down in, or we'll get to it in a minute. I also hear people say like, I always lose weight going into a race, or like the last week before a race, I drop a bunch of weight. And it's not great, very honestly. You should, if you're looking to lose weight, we should lose that much farther away from your race, like two, three, four months out. And if you have less than 20 pounds to lose, whatever that obscure number means, you probably don't need to worry about it in general or accept that you're compromising your race performance and potentially your health in the process. Like, look, I really don't care if you want to get lean enough to get onto a bodybuilding stage on a Friday and then run a hundred miler on a Saturday. It's your life. I don't think it's wise, but do what you wish. But if you get really lean, we're talking like three, four or 5% for men, five being at the upper end of what you'd see on a bodybuilding stage and like 10, 11, 12% for women, you are not going to perform very well. You're going to perform worse. It is, you just don't have enough fat to have enough hormones to push yourself well. Everybody has their sweet spot of what is normal or good or average or stable for you when it comes to calorie intake and body fat percentage and all this stuff. But you have a space and I promise you for a man, it's not 3% for a woman. It's not 10. 
Like some of it is genetics, some of it is training history, some of it is dietary history. Some of it is like the rest of your life, how much stress you have going on elsewhere. Some people might, some men might do fine at 10% body fat, while others might need something like 15 to perform well. And I really don't care what your running friends Becky and Brian do. They're not you. So don't try to copy their diet. We should also look at not trying to copy the diet of some random athlete because I would say most high-level athletes, until they are really up there and getting professional help from a dietitian, often come to prominence in spite of what they eat, not because of it. <clears throat> Individual variation plays a huge role here, and a lot of the time, people are just going to have a ton of talent and excel at their sport far before they really know what they're doing or know how to support it well. So if you're trying to copy someone who has more of a dietary strategy than they have a training strategy, something is probably going on there, and it might work for them due to some genetic variation, it probably is not going to work for you. So let's look at what overtraining even is, because that is really what we're asking when we're looking at are you eating enough? It's are you overtraining? Are you moving towards red S? Are you looking towards the female athlete triad to use a like older but still very useful piece of language? So is overtraining real? Sure. Um, what is it? It is a like lack of balance between training and recovery, where you are training more than you can recover. And if we're going to take that perspective, then it is not really overtraining unless you train so much that you physically could not recover. And my typical go-to example here is James Lawrence, the Iron Cowboy. A lot of people know who he is. He's done a lot of things. One of the things he did was in 2021, so last year, he did 101 Ironmans in 101 days. And it was impressive. He finished. It was originally supposed to be 100. He did another one for good measure. Man is incredibly impressive as a human. But the part that we often don't hear about stories like that is he was broken for three to four months after that. I saw him in December of last year speak live at a conference where I was for fitness, and somebody asked him what the aftermath of that, like, 101 and 101 days was, and he basically said, like, he couldn't really move, he was kind of broken, he was stuck on the couch, he was unmotivated, he was drained, he was tired all the time, he gained a bunch of weight for the span of like three to four months. And this is classic, like HPA axis dysfunction or adrenal fatigue or whatever you want to call it, overtraining syndrome. This is what this stuff is. And he trained or performed for 15, 16 hours a day for over three months. He had to eat eight to 10,000 calories per day. He, there was physically not enough time for him to sleep enough to recover Right, just not enough hours in the day. So that's very clearly overtraining. If we're going to put this on a spectrum from overtraining to under-recovery, like they're, they're intertwined, you can't separate them, but that is absolutely overtraining. When there is not enough physical time in your day to recover, no matter how much you tried to do so. He was eating Big Macs on the bike. He was trying, and it just wasn't there. Most of us, however, just under-recover. Yes, we train hard, we push hard. 10 hours of training a week is a lot for a lot of people, but it is not that. It is not running, you know, 
a 50 miler every day type of work. So how do we recover? It is a mixture of many factors. It is sleep, it is food, it is the right kind of food, like you need enough protein, which is about a 0.8 grams per pound of body weight um, to help your muscles restore. You need enough fat intake, which is at least 20% of your overall calories, probably closer to 25, 30%. And you need enough carbohydrates to restore glycogen levels and perform well. And that last one is not necessary if we're being very explicit, but it's a pretty good idea. And I'll get into more of that in a second. We also need hydration. You need to have enough fluid in your body to, you know, digest food and stay hydrated and not fall apart. You need some low-level movement. Recovery actually happens better at low forms of movement than just stagnancy. Granted, if you're doing something like 100 Ironmans in 100 days, the other eight hours of your day should be on your back in a van trying to sleep as you get to your next Ironman. But for most of us, we should probably take a walk or if you're training your legs really heavily, then we should do some air squats rather than like heavy barbell squats, right? Low level movement helps you recover faster. We also see this from a cardio perspective. If we're running or jogging or walking at like 120 beats per minute as a heart rate, you'll actually see faster cardiovascular replenishment than you would just sitting down if you're training something like one to two to three hours a day. Let's go back to carbs because yes, they're not necessary. You would not die if you never ate a carb again, but it's not a great idea. This is why I'm not particularly a fan of the low carb for athletes thing. I'm not a high carb person. On average, I eat fewer carbs per day than like the average American who sits at a desk even in a heavy training cycle. I run the numbers. <laughs> um, my long run days tend to come up to about what the average American consumes on a daily basis. But it doesn't, it doesn't mean we should get rid of them entirely. Like, we don't need to be getting rid of an entire food group when we're doing a sport with a reported which means it's higher, by the way. Most people don't report their, like, tiny injuries. Like, nobody's going to know when we're looking at studies about my calf strain. So we have a reported 50% injury risk. It's probably higher. And we know that overall caloric intake plays a huge, huge role in injury prevention. So why are we removing an entire source of calories that a lot of people like? Yes, carbs create glycogen and glucose, and they help your performance. They help explosive efforts. It's a faster fuel, all of this stuff. But really the biggest issue on the day-to-day -day basis is that most people undereat, And a lot of these diets, like keto works as a diet. Tangent. Today's a day of tangents. It doesn't work as a diet. Any diet that you have to keep returning to doesn't work. This is why I'm not a huge fan of things like Weight Watchers. A mentor of mine, Mike Milner, pointed this out to me um, you'll hear commercials for Weight Watchers. I love Weight Watchers. I go back to it whenever I need to lose weight. If it worked, you wouldn't have to go back to it. And same with keto. Keto helped me lose 20 pounds. And then what happened? I stopped eating that way because I like potatoes. Great. Then what? I gained 30 pounds. Cool. Then keto didn't work. So stop going back to keto for weight loss. Anyway, diversion aside, keto helps you lose weight 
in the short term because it creates an easy caloric deficit. It is very explicit. It is easy to follow. Just don't eat carbs. Simple, right? It's maybe not easy to follow because, you know, potatoes taste good, but very simple. We have the same thing with paleo or the low-fat craze of the 80s. Anytime you remove an entire food group, it becomes very easy to cut calories because you just don't have as many options and we can't mix things. Like if we look at something like cookies and cake, yes, they're carbs. Per calorie, they're actually more fat. So it cuts out this highly digestible food thing. So then we, like you follow it so long, your metabolism adapts or you decide carbs or bread or bacon or whatever is tasty and then you fall off of it and you end up gaining it all back. We should not be eating a diet that is aggressively effective for weight loss during a training phase. Calories are a key ingredient to your recovery. The fact that carbs help like high level performance and explosiveness and all of this stuff absolutely matters. Um, but that even notwithstanding, they help prevent injury because including them in your diet helps you get enough food. And you're not, you're clearly not immediately going to get red S and die if you don't eat 30 grams of carbs before or during your 30 to 60 minute easy run in the morning. You'll be fine, but it's irresponsible to eat or undereat. It's irresponsible to undereat in a heavy training cycle. And cutting out an entire food group pushes you to undereat. And then you're going to perform mediocrely at best. So unless you hate carbs or you don't digest them well or something else is wrong, eat them. They're not voodoo. They're a nutrient like everything else. And if you disagree with me on that point, I'd be happy to talk to you about the subject. Um, but so let's look at some signs of overtraining or red S. So I've been using this term. I should have defined it 10 minutes ago. Red S is relative energy deficiency in sport basically means your output and your intake are not the same. So you're not eating as much food as you are outputting energy. This is a very large aspect of overtraining. I saw this, I think Oscar shared it with me. Um, Featherstone Nutrition put out an Instagram carousel, and part of it was 86% of those with overtraining systems were not eating enough. So 86% of those who were experiencing overtraining were having some level of red S. And I will link that study in the notes and or the comments. But if we are having this big of a fat, like this is such a big factor in overtraining and we see overtraining pretty commonly, then a lot of athletes just aren't eating enough food to support recovery and good health and all these things. So we should probably know the signs of what overtraining looks like. One of them is a plateau in performance. If you plateau, there'll be a couple things going on. One of them is that you need to change your training cycle. You need to, your body's already made these adaptations. You need to cycle it up a little bit and just kind of change what you're doing. It is not muscle confusion or whatever nonsense like we've heard but your body does respond to changes and you need to target these things a little separately. So if we're going to hit a, if we hit a plateau, you might need to change your training cycle. 
The other thing that might be going on is you're not eating enough, so you've plateaued, or you're not sleeping enough, so you've plateaued, and you're starting to approach overtraining. If you're hitting a plateau in your training, something needs to change. It might be your training. It might be your recovery strategy. It's probably both, to be very honest. Another big factor is frequent illness. Even something as simple as a cold or simple upper respiratory tract infections. If you have five kids and you're a teacher, then you're going to get sick. There's a lot of children. <laughs> I used to be a teacher. I got sick more. Um, if you're like me and you have really narrow nasal passages where things like to get trapped, you're more likely to get upper respiratory tract infections. But even then, I probably get them too often because I'm terrible at taking care of myself. And if you get sick pretty often, then you very likely need to take better care of yourself, and a good portion of that might be eating more food. Another pretty good sign is that you get moody. This is one of people's first responses to overtraining. You just get irritable. And some of that can also show up as you just dread the idea of training. If you don't want to go out there and run, even though you usually love running, if you don't want to lift, even though you usually love lifting, then maybe you need to switch it up for a little bit. If you're dreading the thought of going to do the thing, then probably means something's going on. We also have stuff like low libido. If you're not recovering well enough, your body will not produce enough hormones, and some of the first ones to go are your sex hormones, because your body doesn't need them to survive. Clearly needs them for other things, but not to survive. So if your libido drops off, you might be in signs of overtraining. We also see high stress. If stress is really high, that could come from two directions. It is going to contribute to your overtraining, because all stress is stress. So be that work or home or training or whatever stress, all of that contributes to this overall cortisol influx in your system, and it will cause problems down the line. And further, if that is happening, it becomes stressful, and you end up like a snowball rolling down the hill. It just gets bigger and bigger and bigger. If your hunger signals are messed up, that's another one. So if you're always hungry, then you're very likely to it is very likely that you're not eating enough. Like, that's actually a pretty good sign. If you are hungry, you should eat. Unless you are trying to lose weight, then if you're hungry, you shouldn't be starving, but hunger's a pretty good signal there. If you're losing weight and you're not hungry, that means something is actually probably wrong. Now, if we also look at if you're never hungry, we hit the other end there. It means you've already gone through that phase, and your metabolism's already starting to adapt. So that's kind of what's going on there. If you have low energy, you shouldn't feel like garbage all the time, right? Like, life training should not make the rest of your life a living hell. It should actually be beneficial. Now, I personally don't understand when I hear people say that after their workout, they became more energized, like, maybe mentally for me, but I'm often pretty drained after my workouts. And I'll, like, put in the recovery, and I'll be good a little bit later. But directly after leg day... I'm tired. Like, directly after tempo run day, I'm pretty tired. But that doesn't mean it was bad. And a couple hours later, I'm kind of back to form. I had a big tempo run earlier today. It was great. I was tired for an hour, ate a bunch of food, and I feel really good right now. So this is kind of the cycle we should be in. If I didn't eat a bunch of food, I would just be on a downward spiral for the rest of my day. Now, 
bad sleep. This can be both a cause and a symptom of overtraining. If you are not sleeping well, then you might already be in overtraining or you might be pushing yourself towards it because here's why. So when you sleep, you create all these hormones like human growth hormone and testosterone and estrogen and these things that will help your recovery. You need these things to recover and they are made in your sleep, specifically deep sleep. So if you're not sleeping, you're pushing yourself towards hormone dysfunction and you're going to have problems. On the other end, if you are already overtrained, your cortisol is going to be inherently higher, as we've already talked about. And when your cortisol is super high, you can't really make melatonin, so you're just going to stay up and roll and toss and turn and struggle. So if you're struggling to sleep, it is very likely that you're in some cycle of overtraining, one direction or the other. It, is, it ends up in this spiral where it might cause the problem to start, and then it fosters the problem and causes the problem, fosters, etc. So like this is what we're, what happens. Then we have a couple other ones. Poor digestion. If your digestion's off, it usually means something is going wrong. If your digestion's always off, we should probably fix that because it probably means you can't ingest calories properly on race day. And then if we're looking at females um, and a regular or absent menstrual cycle, you know, if you're someone who should be menstruating normally, then that is also not great. It is a sign of an estrogen or progesterone imbalance, and we're having problems there. And then finally, if your weight is stable, even though you feel like you should be losing weight, all of these are pretty good signs that food and output and intake are just off, and we need to probably eat more as our first step because you cannot... Do really much of anything with a, an adapted metabolism. If your metabolism isn't working for you, then you aren't going to do well no matter how hard you try. So we need to fix that metabolism first. You need to restore that metabolism first, and then you can perform well or lose weight or live forever or whatever you're trying to do. But the, you must fix your hormones and your metabolism first or else it's not going to work. Now, I'm going to link another article in the comments and notes on this. It's an article from Runner's World, which I know people have their opinions on for good reason. But it's about Jake Riley, and he is a professional marathoner, and he is currently struggling to come back from Red S. And really, everyone should read this article. It is well-written. It is informative. It is about an athlete, specifically a male athlete, because a lot of people have the vision of someone who struggles with this is a like very gaunt female who had, with an eating disorder, um, a male athlete who's been affected by red S and it tanked his performance, threw him out of like Olympic consideration. And he's working really hard to come back in the next couple of years. And nobody's really sure if he's going to do it. He's still in the middle of it. And that's what makes it so appreciated by a lot of us that he is open and out and talking about this because this condition is very common, way more common than you will ever hear about. So I promise you that you know someone who is affected by red S and whether that is, you know, it is pervasive and it's sneaky. And one thing that 
often makes it worse is that you can see some short-term improvement a lot of the time when you start to go in an energy deficiency. And there might be a couple reasons for this. Some people say it is direct improvement from the weight loss, but other people will say that it is, this is more the camp I fall in, that your body is just leveraging cortisol, which kind of feels like a magic hormone when you're on it. We call these people cortisol junkies. When you're really pushing hard into using cortisol, then you can feel like you can do anything. You feel like you can run through a wall, and then you fall, and you fall hard. So I promise you that you probably know someone who has been affected by Red S, even if you have not. And what's really frustrating <laughs> to me and a few other people is that this article <laughs> about someone struggling with this is in the section of Runner's World, Runner's World called Nutrition and Weight Loss. And it's next to other articles, like adding table salt to food may lead to shorter life expectancy study shows. And these are just not well done for runners. These are not targeted towards athletes. They're not whatever. So this is the climate we're in, that we're pushing for weight loss in an athletic magazine next to articles about someone struggling with red S while trying to perform well. It's hard. So it is not surprising that anybody in this sport might be under eating. It's really common. And if you think you might be, I'd be happy to help you figure it out. Just shoot me a message and we can assess your food and see if it might be enough for what you're doing. So open invite, message me, and I'm happy to look at it. It's a, it's a passion project of mine, and we need to go further, then we can talk about that, but I'll glance at it for nothing. It's a thing I would love to fix in this world. One thing before I head out, if you have any comments or questions for tonight, please feel free to pop them in either of the chats, and I will address them before we leave. But wanted to address really quickly bonking or hitting the wall because I saw a bunch of people who joined the group recently mention that they've been hitting the wall or bonking or struggling and it feels like a topic that I see a lot so let's just address what what that is what it means and what's going on the reason you're bonking is you ran out of carbs the end that is it that is what's happening your muscles had glycogen in them which is fuel and now they don't because you've been running or hiking or doing whatever for long enough to completely deplete it. And if you don't want to bonk, then you should eat more carbs. That is it. Um, you can fix it with other things. For example, protein will eventually turn into carbohydrate and replenish glycogen. If you eat an excess of protein, it will also turn into fat if you need a, to a, a severe excess of it. But why? Like the carbohydrate going to glyc glucose, going to glycogen is a much faster process. It requires less of your body. If you're bunking out there, eat more carbohydrates, probably specifically highly digestible carbohydrates because you're actively working. You're not going to end up with insulin problems. You're not going to end up with whatever it is. I mean, talk to a doctor if you're worried, but I've never shown these to be a thing unless you're already really sick. Eat more carbohydrate and you won't bonk or hit the wall. I've heard some things about bonking and why it might be desirable. Like, bonk training helps you burn fat, so you lose more fat. As in, it's a good dietary approach for those looking for weight loss. And I guess that's technically true. If you have no carbs to burn, then you will burn a higher percentage of whatever calories you're burning as fat. 
but it's not actually more efficacious for fat loss at all. Fat loss is about two things. One, energy balance. If you are eating more than you burn, then you're going to gain weight. If you're eating less than you burn, you're going to lose weight. Now, it's not to say that if you plug it into a calculator or MyFitnessPal or Chronometer that they're going to give you good advice. They're probably not, but the overall concept of you cannot create or destroy actual energy in the world holds true. So we need to appreciate thermodynamics and that it is, it is about calorie balance, even though calorie balance might be really hard to define. And the other thing is about muscle maintenance. So if you're trying to lose fat and you don't work to maintain muscle, then you're going to end up losing a lot of muscle. And this happens a lot when people try and do a ton of cardio for uh, weight loss when they're already kind of lean. They'll pair off pretty equal amounts of muscle and fat, and they actually end up in a worse place than when they started because their body fat percentage might increase even though they've lost weight. And that's the last thing you really want to do. So there's no like magic here. It is If you are in a calorie deficit, you're going to lose weight. If you're not, you won't. If you do resistance training and eat enough protein, you'll maintain muscle. If you don't, you won't. There's not a lot else to it. I'm not saying it's easy. Some of those things are really hard. A lot of the time it's more mental issue than anything else. I have struggled with weight or like fluctuated weight for a very long time. I get it, but it's not complicated. Simple and difficult are not, not antonyms. It is, it is, it is hard but it's simple. And I'm going to finish the second part of this, but first Brad asked, how about late race hamstring cramping? Um, I have some thoughts on that. How late are we talking, Brad? And what's your hydration like? What's your fueling like? Are you taking in sodium? Like the more information you want to share, the better I can do for you. I will also link my uh, podcast on cramping directly in the, the comments and notes when I'm done here. But if you give me more information, I can answer more right now. Oh, I've also heard that bonking helps your muscles learn to store glycogen better, which is just incorrect. It does not work like resistance training. They thought that for a little bit, but it doesn't seem to be accurate. In fact, bonking, and even if it were, bonking leads to slower recovery and slower adaptations. So even if the adaptation were slightly, slightly bigger, you're going to make that recovery to that adaptation slower. So you'd be better doing like smaller incremental processes because you will get to the end goal faster. Staying properly fueled teaches their muscle, your muscles to do their job better. You do not need to bonk to train your muscles to store glycogen. They're pretty good at it and they get better at it if you feed them more glycogen as you run. That is actually how you train them to do that. Now, you will have an upper limit. Everybody does. It is pretty well dictated by your muscle mass. Muscles are not you know, completely complicated organs or um, tissues, but some of it is going to depend on your ratio of like type 1 to type 2 fibers or slow twitch, fast twitch, whatever you want to call them. There's intermediary fibers. Your personal glycogen storage is going to vary a little bit. Not a lot. And... The way you tra train to store more is, one, build more muscle. You're not training anything there, but you have more of a storage capacity, specifically in your legs, so get bigger legs. 
and you will store more glycogen. Get better connection to your leg muscles. Then you can use more of them m more often so that you're not relying so much on like a few fibers because the whole fiber has to contract in a muscle. It's these long spindles. So the whole fiber contracts. But if we have a bundle of these fibers, like imagine a bundle of pencils, a couple can contract and we want all of them to contract. So that's really what we're looking for here. And so if we train better, we'll get better at that. If we eat more glycogen, we'll also get better at that. And if we are um, not getting enough glycogen, then you have a much higher risk of getting injured, having to take a week or two or a month off, and then you're going to lose all your gains anyway. So if you can show me a study that shows that glycogen depletion training leads to better glycogen storage that leads to a practical performance application, I'm happy to recant all of that, but I don't think I'm wrong. Um, but I will admit if I am, I have changed my mind on a lot of things. Carbs, uh, I used to be a keto person, clearly not the case anymore. So let me know, and I'm happy to talk about it. Brad, uh, three hours in, eating and drinking everything, salt pills, goo, noon, etc. Cool, what's your sweat rate? And are you drinking enough to completely replenish that sweat rate? That'd be the first thing I'm doing. If you don't know your sweat rate, you should do a sweat test. And that's in my hydration guide, which I'll also link in here. Uh, if you do know your sweat rate and you're drinking enough to replenish that, make sure you're consuming enough sodium in ratio to your fluid intake. So we should be looking like 500 milligrams of sodium to 500 milligrams to a gram of sodium per liter of fluid. Some people are a lot higher. Some people are up to like 1.72 grams. That's really high. Uh, I can't, you know, recommend that for you but it's a possibility. I'll say the worst cramps I've ever had are when I went on a 14, not particularly well-trained, so that's a factor as well, but like I went on a 14-mile run with 4,000 feet of elevation, and as I hit the top of the mountain, I realized it earlier, but the cramping started like just as I was hitting the top of the mountain, and I realized about four miles into that whole thing that I'd forgot all sources of sodium. Plenty of carbs, no sodium, and it just led to the worst fire my quads have ever had. And that would be one thing. Cool. Redo sweat test. Not a bad idea. And then how much sodium are you taking in per liter? So sodium could be a thing. Another thing that tends to lead to cramping is potassium. So you might not be getting enough of that. You say salt pills, goo, noon, etc. But depending on your salt pills, that might not be particularly high in potassium. And you might have higher needs depending on your diet. So for example, and again, I don't know you super well but if you have like if you ate carnivore then it's a much higher risk that you're going to come in to the race with a potassium deficiency anyway because more potassium comes from plants so you would need to eat even more during your race to overcome that right and you say you're a heavy and salty sweater I would say redo your sweat test if you haven't done one in the past two months because unless you're you know in Australia in the winter it is hot and your sweat rate's probably changed and then we probably need to reassess your sodium intake and see how that does and I would probably push your sodium until salt tastes bad you have a really good sign of if you're drinking or taking in too much sodium because sodium starts to taste bad have a really chill day where you do nothing and then go eat a teaspoon of sodium it's going to taste bad if you have worked all day and you haven't had much sodium, it's going to taste like straight salt will taste good. Yeah, it's been three years. I'll do one tomorrow. We'll be warm. 
great. I think that's that's the best bet. And then for real, if you're if if you get that result, feel free to message me, and I'm happy to help you dial it in. Absolutely honest offer. Just shoot me a DM. It'll take me like three seconds. It's not a burden. All right, y'all. If you have any more questions, great. Um, I'm not seeing anything else. So, Brad, message me tomorrow when you when you figure that out. I'm happy to help you out. Everybody else, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate those of you who stuck around, talk about food and intake and red S and all that stuff with me. Um, I'm going to head out and go teach a, teach a lifting class. Hope you all have a great rest of your, your evening, and I'll be back next week. See ya. Thank you for listening to the show. To be clear, I'm not a doctor nor a registered dietitian, and nothing you heard was medical advice. You should always speak with a qualified medical professional before making any changes to your training regimen. If you enjoy the podcast or found it useful, please take a couple seconds to give it a rating or share it with a friend. Every little bit helps. And if you want more of this information, please head to the Trail and Ultra Running Nutrition Group on Facebook. You'll be in good company with other like-minded people who like to do hard stuff outside.